35 and older, you're like, please, move on, right? Okay, all right. So, so these are little packets of reach cards. There's 10 of them. It's called 10 for 10 is because we're saying 10 cards every week for the next 10 weeks that over the summer that you're going to give out 100 reach cards. And then every Saturday or Sunday, whichever campus that you attend, that you come to church, if you've given out 10 cards that week, it's on your honor. If you've given out 10 cards that week, then you can put your name into a drawing. If you give out 20 cards that week, then you can enter your name twice in the drawing. You with me? And so at the end of the summer, we're going to do a drawing, and the person who wins is going to win a, a party for them and 10 of their friends at Pelican Snow. It's called Pelican Snow, Offer Work Boulevard that we're going to pay for. So you're, all right, so come on, you're with me? So 10 cards, 10 cards, come on, every week, every week. And, and, and you should be praying, God, create opportunities for me. You might think, Fred, I, I don't even give, I give away a reach card maybe a month. You should be praying that God's going to open doors. There's going to be divine encounters that you're going to have, that this is part, we're going to talk about it tonight. You are supposed to be rescue oriented, rescue oriented, and God's going to change your heart. So at the end of the service, you can make your way up and grab one of those, or if you feel so inspired, right in the middle of the sermon, just come up, right, and get, get 10 of those. All right, okay, all right. So hey, let me also say before we get into the launch of, of tonight's um, uh, message, which is again the launch of the series, that uh, we're sending our kids to kids camp. We send our middle school, high school, our Revolution Church, RC goes to kids camp every summer. We raise scholarships every summer. We do all these other fundraisers, but for some people we say, you just need to write a check. And so we wrote a check uh, last Saturday night. We've just said as a family that when we have two kids go, we're going to pay for three. When we have three kids go, we're paying for four. And so we're going to challenge some of you to do that. And this is the first year where your kids are grown and have graduated, and you're saying, thank God, I don't have to write that check this year. Come on, write a check one more year. We never want a child to not be able to go to camp. That's never happened in the history of the City Life Church, and this cannot be the year. So we want to raise seven scholarships. We've got two already. A full scholarship is $350. Some of you, you can afford to do that, and you might not be able to do that, but do what you can. And we're going to give that to a scholarship fund, and we're going to keep updating you as we go. So Father, we, we just pray, God, that you're going to stir in all of our hearts moments of generosity, that we're going to sow into this next generation. There are God encounters that are waiting for them in Pennsylvania this weekend that are going to set the trajectory of their destiny, God, and let it be that we are willing to be the generation that pays the way for them to go in Jesus' name. Come on, and everybody said together, amen, amen. All right, let me get my little clock set up up here because the one that's back there, I haven't been able to see that one for about three years now. So, all right. It's in your best interest that I have this up here. All right, so we're going to have a little bit of fun tonight as we get started. We like to have fun here at City Life. You know, if you've been tracking with us for any amount of time, I'm a big movie person. I'm a film guy love movies, and so I thought a great way to launch our, our series tonight would be to give you some of my favorite rescue movies, all right? So I've got 13 of them that I'm going to give you, and then every week, every week, we're going to use uh, one of these movies as the, as the, as the imagery for our, our presentation. Does that make sense? So all throughout this message, uh, Jamie, Pastor Jamie's favorite movie, Castaway, just kidding, it's not really just kidding. It's not really his favorite, favorite movie. See how I did that? I know, I know. See, so 
so, so tonight's all, it's all about this movie, Castaway. So I've been wrestling with how I was, I've got a copy of it I'm going to give away, and we're going to give away a copy tomorrow morning. And so I thought the person, I want to give this to a young man I met this week. He had his very first swim meet ever, and he's just turned 13, and I think this is PG-13. And so I'm going to give it to his dad and let his dad decide whether or not he can have it. But I'm going to give this to Brad back here, give it to his dad, Jim. So congratulations on your first swim meet this week. Hey, Jim. All right. Yeah. He did so great. Come on, swimming up and down those lanes. His mom is a, a triathlete, and so he said, I'm going to join because I want to train to do my first triathlon with my mom. So isn't that, that's good stuff, isn't it? It's awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. So, All right, so I am just a little disclaimer. I'm not recommending that you watch some of these movies. That's on you, okay? Just saying, because... And then some of them you need to watch on fast forward, and then some of them you probably, you just need to decide that you're not ever going to watch it because, and maybe you just can figure that out on your own. Okay, a little disclaimer there, a little disclaimer there. Then I don't want you going home and say, D- Pastor Fred said I could watch this movie, right? Okay, all right, all right, best in, best, uh, top 13, top 13. So best princess rescue, any, 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 any guesses? No, no. Star Wars, yes, yeah, I know. Yes, yes. This is the first Star Wars. So don't come up at the end of the service and say you you mean you mean episode what is it four? They call it? no no no. This is the first one. If you're of my generation, this is Star Wars number one because we were all there opening night when everyone found out for the first time that Darth Vader was Luke's father. Okay, this is right. All right, so 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 Star Wars. Best hostage rescue. Now see, some of these have hashtags and sayings that we can't repeat in church. But, but this is the Beretta 92, just saying, double action, single action, ambidextrous safety, classic. Just, just throwing that out there for all the shooters. All right, best friends rescue. Rescue of friends. Any takers? Any, any guesses? Yeah, somebody said it. Who said Toy Story? Tyler, nice. Toy Story 2. Come on, am I the only one? I love kids' movies. I love kids' cartoons. I'm a big Kung Fu Panda fan. Love watching those. You come to our house, you see it in the DVR. It's not just for our children. It's for the grown-ups. It's for the grown-ups. Best sol- now, this was a tough one. Best Soldier Rescue. I, Saving Private Ryan, one second place. Okay, I'm leaving. Black Hawk Down, right? Black Hawk Down, right? Because true story, because true story wins every time. True story wins. So my, my boys, this, this, this summer vacation, we usually let them watch a movie for the first time as they get older. So we're going to do a little Black Hawk Down. So it's, the Michelle boys are pretty excited about summer vacation this summer. Mom doesn't know about that yet. Okay. Best President Rescue. I guarantee you nobody in here is going to get this one. I would put money on it. Escape from New York. Because mm-hmm. if Snake Plissken, right, if he ever ran into Nick Fury, Nick Fury's getting the beat down. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. And, and whatever your top 13 is for rescue movies, I don't want to talk to you if there's not at least one person who wears an eye patch in there. It's got to be at least an eye patch. It's got to be at least an eye patch. All right. Best rescue in. Yes, you better believe it has to be Alien, right? 
And the best tagline ever in space, no one can hear you scream. And Nathaniel Miller, he can verify that. He works for NASA. All right. All right, we're on number seven. Number seven, best astronaut rescue? Not, not gravity. Apollo 13, right? True story, wins every day. All right, number eight, best animal rescue? This is a nod to all the pet lovers. Who are my pet lovers out there? Eight below. Yeah. I know, I know. All right, moving on, moving on, moving on. Number nine, best daughter rescue. Somebody said it earlier. Oh, yes, it is, taken. I don't have any money, but what I do have is a very particular set of skills. All right, I'm just saying. So, got, you got to love some Liam Neeson. Western, and this, I'm going to tell you, it's the best Western ever made. Yes, come on, you are rocking it tonight. They took the boy, Emmett. See, I know, yeah, you got to watch it for yourself. Best, that's Kevin Costner on the right when he was 11. 11. This, this, this could be one of the best rescue movies ever of, of all time, but it's not because there's another one that's going to win that award for me. But the best rescue in the love of your life. Anybody? Yeah, yeah. Stay alive! Right? Okay, I've always wanted to say that. Okay. Best rescue on an island, of course, we already know what that one's going to be. Castaway, all right, we're moving on. Best rescue ever. Ever. Of all time. Passion of the Christ. It's got to be. Passion of the Christ. Come on, a little applause for the movie trivia. This is the best rescue ever because in all of those other ones, and even though they were based on a true story, they were not your story, but this is the story of all of us. There is something inside of you and there is something inside of me that wants to be a hero. There is something inside of all of us that longs to have an opportunity in life where we give ourselves to something bigger than we are, to, to be a person that rescues and saves others. And we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight together. But there is also a deep desire inside of you and a deep desire inside of me that someone would love us enough to come to our rescue. That all of us, I don't care how tough you are, how much of a man you are, that there is something inside of you that longs to be loved, to be cared for, that someone at their own risk and at their own peril would give all of who they are to come save you. And for some of us here tonight, we can look back to a moment in time. For me, December of 1990, driving down Laburnum Avenue in my 1984 Honda Prelude, Jesus Christ reached out to me and he saved my life. I was rescued. And this series, all summer, every weekend, we come together here and in Williamsburg on Sunday morning, we're going to talk to you about finding that moment in your own story. That we're believing and we're praying and we're trusting that you're praying with us that every service that we gather together this summer, there are going to be people who come who cannot look into the story of their life and find a moment where they've made a vow of devotion to Christ and there is an aching and a longing inside of them for Jesus to be their rescuer and we're saying this is going to be an historic summer for our church. It's going to be an epic summer for our church because it's going to be historic for people that people scores of people come on they're going to be rescued because they find themselves in a setting just like this and they say I need him to save me come on so father as we just launch into this message tonight we know it's we're launching into a vision we're, we're launching into a 
passion. We're launching into a desire, and we just pray into this whole summer right now. The, the beginning of our summer as a church family, help us, God, to reach out to people, divine appointments, reach cards, abounding God, invitations being extended. It's not about growing a church. It's about rescuing people. It's about your kingdom. And so, Father, we say let it be that, Father, tonight is going to be the birthing of it, and it's going to continue on tomorrow morning and all throughout this summer until we get to the end of August, and then we do our baptism service in September in Williamsburg. Come on, there's going to be a line outside the door for people to wade out into their waters because they took their first spiritual breath in the summer of 2014. Come on, and everybody said together, amen, amen. When my situation is desperate, my efforts are failing, and urgency surrounds me, I need to be rescued. Now, I want to read a little bit out of this story. It's not our main text for tonight, but it's going to help, I think, create some context for us. It's Matthew 14, beginning in verse 22, and my caption in my Bible says, Jesus walks on water. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat. It's following the feeding of the 5,000, get back to the boat and cross to the other side of the lake. And while he sent the people home, after sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. And night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land. Their situation was desperate. They were far away from land, and a very strong wind had risen, and they were, they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. He didn't need a boat. And when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. And in their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once, don't be afraid, he said, take courage, I am here. And then Peter called to him, Lord, you are walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water towards Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. And immediately Jesus reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? Now there's a whole summer worth of sermons that are packed into that one little story. But the one that I want to, us to see together tonight is that if you're here and you've never made a vow devotion to Christ, this is the picture, this is the story of your life. It, it might be that you've got everything together. It might be that you have a successful career. It might be that you have a thriving marriage. It might be that you've got well-adjusted children. It might be that everything from a practical sense, from a, just this natural world that you live in, you look at your life and you say, I'm doing great, but I want you to know tonight that if you've never made a vow of devotion to Christ, you are Peter on the water and you are sinking. That all of us in this life, spiritually, until we have called out to him, until we've reached out to him, until we felt his presence reaching back and holding us, all of us are sinking beneath the waves. Jesus came into this world for one reason and one reason alone. He came to save. He came to rescue. And we don't want you leaving here tonight to have the opportunity to know that as you stand there on the sinking waters of your spirituality, there is someone here who can save you. 
The sense of urgency I see in Jesus should awaken me to the sense of urgency I should have about my condition. I'm not going to put these, uh, read these, but if you're a note taker, John 9, 4 is the life verse for our series. But this is where Jesus says, he says, hey, we've got to work while it's still light. And there's moments when that, that, that are recorded for us in the Gospels where Jesus is teaching and there's a sense of urgency about who he is. We don't see a sense of panic, not that kind of urgency. We, we don't see a sense in him of I've been given way too much to do. He's not not frazzled and stressed there's a sense of urgency inside of him in the sense that he understands that the mission that he's been given by the father when he said i will leave heaven and come to earth there's a sense of urgency about him that the work that he's been given to do is sacred and that if he doesn't save us no one else will there should be something inside of us that if we're going through this life and that we've never made a vow of devotion to Christ and we're thinking to ourselves, I, I think I'm okay just the way that I am. There should be something inside of us that looks at the life of Jesus and everything that he said and did and say, if I'm okay the way that I am, why did he talk like that? If I'm okay the way that I am, why did he do the things that he did? If I'm okay the way that I am, why did he leave heaven to come to this earth with the message of you and I needing to be saved? John 8, 1 through 11. Okay, this is our story. Every week, we're going to look at a story of someone being rescued, and we've picked this one in particular, as you're going to see in some of the other ones that we worked through this summer. We don't really know the end of the story, and I like that for our launch, because for some of you, the end of your story has not been written yet, and tonight it can be. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, and we're going to get into this tonight of, 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 of what it means to return and why he had, had left. And if, if your Bible's like mine, it has a little note there that says the most ancient Greek manuscripts don't include this portion, but I'm just a simple-minded person and think that if the sovereignty of God is real, then he can get us the Bible that we're supposed to have, and so it belongs. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple, and a crowd had soon gathered, and he sat down and he taught them. The city was a crowded place because it's right at the end of the Feast of Booths, and he sat down and he began to teach them, and as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, Pharisees and Sadducees were kind of like the two main political parties in the nation of Israel, and they differed on whether or not there was a resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe it, they just believed that this was all there was was to life and the Pharisees actually believed that there was a resurrection and so when you see those two mentioned they're kind of always jockeying against each other so the Pharisees they brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery not not had a known reputation of being adulterer but in the act found her doing things that she shouldn't be doing and they dragged her from that place and they put her in front of the crowd and they said teacher they said to Jesus this woman was caught in the very act of adultery, and the law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? Now the religious leaders, they're jealous of Jesus and the attention that he gets from the people, and so here we find them trying to trap him because he has this reputation of being compassionate. He has this reputation of forgiving, and so they finally found someone in the act, doing what the law of Moses is very clear, that if you're an adulterer, you're to be stoned. It means that you're to be taken to the edge of town, and oftentimes if there was a precipice, they would throw you over the precipice, and the fall would immobilize you, and they would stand above you, and they would hurl rocks down until you died. So they have this woman. She's clearly guilty. She deserves, according to the Mosaic law, to be killed, and so now they think we finally got him. See, because if he chooses to release her, then we can accuse him of being a heretic because he's telling us to not follow the sacredness of the 
teachings of the law. And if he chooses to embrace the conclusion of the law and he joins us in this condemnation and in her destruction, then he's going to finally lose the favor of people because it will be for the first time that he's not stepped into a place of compassion. It seems like they've got him right where they want him. What do you say? you got to love Jesus. They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down. My guess is they weren't expecting this. You, you with me? He stooped down and began to write in the dust with his finger. They kept on demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down and he began to write some more. See, this is an important part because in order for the Mosaic Law to be followed, the very first stone had to be thrown by the person who's saying, I'm bearing witness that this person deserves to die. In fact, it had to be more than one. There had to be at least two that would be willing to step forward. And it was permission giving for everybody else in the crowd. It was how their legal proceeding would follow that other people would say, I wasn't there, but I know these people that are giving their word that this person is guilty. And so they follow the word of the people that lead them. And so Jesus is saying, okay, all right, if if this is how you want to do it, let let me just say that whoever's going to say that you found this woman, you got to look into your own life and tell me that you've never committed a sin. And if you can do that, then you throw the stone. So he stoops down. And he begins to write in the sand. And I love this. It says, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away. Guess who began to leave first? The oldest. Because they've lived the longest and they've got the biggest list of sin. From the oldest, it says, to the youngest. And finally, no one was there except for Jesus and this woman. Would you love that? Because Jesus is the only one who has the right to throw the stone Because one, he knows everything. The ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord to whom we must give account. He sees and he knows everything. And he's a person who's never committed a sin. The irony of the story that we so often forget, I think this woman at first is all excited, right? It doesn't tell us this. This is my own reading into it. But what she should be thinking is, oh no. I should actually really be a little bit intimidated because he has the right to condemn me because he knows me, he's seen my sin, and he's lived a perfect life. And what he says to her is, where are your accusers? And before he lets her go, he says something important to her. A lot of people like this story, as we're going to talk about tonight, but they, they forget how it ends. Before she goes, he says to her, stop doing what you're doing. He uses the S word. He says, go and sin no more. Stop demeaning yourself this way. Stop giving yourself to depravity. This is not why God created you. You have a destiny. You have a purpose. This life that you've given yourself to, you're just living less than what life could be for you. Go and find that life. When we see Jesus as a man, we see him writing on the ground, but when we see him as God, we see him writing on that which he created, and that changes everything for us. When you begin to read the Bible, 
with the revelation that he's God, it changes what you read. It changes what you see. I'm telling you, it just opens up the scriptures to you. If you read it that Jesus is just a man, that you find him as being clever. But when you read it as, as he is divine, that he was in heaven before he came to earth, I'm telling you, it changes the way you read God's word. It just opens up to you. And when we see him as the one who created it all, it tells us in John chapter 1 that there was nothing that made that wasn't made through him, that he was the creation agent of the Father. He's the Logos. He's the living word. And so when God spoke, it was Jesus making it all happen. You and I walk around on this earth as something beautiful that was given to us. When Jesus walked around on this earth, he walked around, I made this. I created it. So I'm going to share with you tonight what I think he wrote, right? Every preacher's got their idea, right, of what they wrote. And I'm just saying mine's better than anybody else's. Just saying, just saying, just saying. So I want to talk to you about a rescue mandate. I'm going to talk about a rescue mandate, and then I'm going to talk to you about a rescue invitation, because this idea of this series isn't just about people who need to make a vow of devotion to Christ. It's about you and I needing to re-up our sense of devotion, that we've got a part that we're supposed to play in helping to see other people be rescued. And I think what we're going to see tonight is that maybe you've never seen it before, but the, another player in the story is the nation of Israel. The focus is always given to the adulterous woman, but there's a, another player here in this story that's just as powerful, the rescue man. This is what I think he wrote. This is mine. I gave it to you to rescue people, not to destroy them. I think that's what he wrote on the ground, or something like this. The nation of Israel had a sacred duty and a sacred calling to share with the world the revelation that God is real and that he wants to have a relationship with you. They were chosen out of all the nations on the planet to the point where we understand them to be the chosen people. And as you read through the story of the Old Testament, which is the history of this nation, that God even gave them a special place, the promised land where they were supposed to live. And guess where this story played out? On the very land that they had been entrusted with. And why were they given that land? Not just because they were his favorite people and he wanted them to have this beautiful place to live. He gave them that land because it was supposed to be the birthplace of their destiny. He gave them that land because it was supposed to be their base of operations. He gave them that land because it was supposed to be the place that the revelation would come to the whole world, that God is alive and he saves. And here they are, as you're going to see tonight, right at the end of the Feast of Booths, which is filled with prophetic imagery of their calling to rescue. Here they are, right at the end of the celebration and on the sacred soul that they were given that was supposed to be their opportunity to rescue. And here they are, trying to destroy this woman out of envy to trying to trap Christ. Can you imagine the turmoil in the heart of Jesus at how they had betrayed their calling? He gave them that place to rescue others. Isaiah 49, 6 through 7 says, He says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light. I'll make you a light to the Gentiles. And in biblical days, you were either Jewish or Gentile. That's the only two categories. Every non-Jewish person was considered a Gentile. And listen to what Isaiah prophesied, that the nation of Israel was supposed to be a light to the whole world. And you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Numbers 34, 1 through 12, if you're a note taker, that gives the boundaries of the land. The land that was supposed to be theirs. The promised land that was to belong to them. And they were supposed to use that land to give their life to bringing a revelation to the world that God saves. 
I think as we read the story, I, I think the conclusion that we can draw is that the real adulterers were those religious leaders. That their religious traditions had become a mistress when their first love was supposed to be their calling. That Jesus is looking at them and saying, you call this woman an adulterer? Look at yourself. Look at yourself. You were chosen by us of all the people of all the world with a sacred purpose and a sacred destiny, and you keep stepping out on that destiny with the mistress of yourself and your own evil desires again and again and again. The Feast of Booths was one of three main feasts that the Israelites were given as a command in the, in the law of Moses. There was Passover, there was Pentecost, and there were booths. Now, each one of them has their own significant meaning, and each one of the feasts is kind of twofold. Each feast, we understand, was to help Israel remember great moments of its past, great moments of its history. So generation after generation, even after the people who were first-time witnesses had died and gone on to be with God, that, that there would be a way for the next generation to come, even though they weren't there, and to know their story. But there was another side to these feasts. These feasts were prophetic. These feasts, all in their own special way, foretold an aspect of the coming of the Messiah. And in the Feast of Booths, what they were supposed to do, the Day of Atonement takes place in, it's, the Jewish calendar is different from ours, but it's roughly our month of October. And the Day of Atonement is a significant day in the Jewish calendar. It's when the high priest would go into the holiest of holies and offer a sacrifice. It was a lamb that had to be perfect without blemish, right? You see, it's, it's foretelling the coming of Christ. And they would offer that sacrifice, and on the Day of Atonement, that one sacrifice would be given for all the nation of Israel. Now, they had sacrifices they did all throughout the year based on certain infractions of the law and different feasts and different days and Sabbath, and it was a, it was a religion of sacrifice all building up to the great sacrifice that would finally come. And after the Day of Atonement, people got busy. The Day of Atonement was like the beginning of a race where everybody who was Jewish took a deep breath. They had five days to do something. They had five days to build a shelter that they would spend time living in for seven days. Now, they didn't have to live in it 24-7, but they had to spend enough time in the shelter that they would make, right? It would probably be enough to motivate you to have less children. I've got to live in a booth with these kids for seven days, right? They would build their shelter. They had five days to do it. And at the beginning of the first day was the launching of the Feast of Booths. And every, every day they had to spend time in that shelter living together as a family to remind them that they lived in temporary housing while they were waiting for the fulfillment of the promised land to come. And it was to remind them of God's faithfulness, how he protected them, how he kept them safe, how they walked with the favor of God. Even though their natural circumstances were desperate, they still prospered. It was to create a sense of vision inside of the hearts of the next generation that God has a calling and a destiny for us. He's going to protect us. He's going to enable us to thrive even though it seems as though we should perish. It's powerful, isn't it? And that's what these people have been doing for the last seven days. And as part of this great feast, every morning, every morning, a whole parade of priests would leave the city. The city would be 
bustling with people from people from all over the known world who were Jewish and even those who weren't would come because it was such a celebration. And the priests would march down to the pool of Siloam and they would get this big pot of water. They would come back up to the temple and they would march around the altar one time and they were singing the Psalms. I think it's Psalm 113 through 118. They were singing all these songs. It was a great festival. And they would pour that water out over the altar. And on the seventh day, they would march around that altar seven times. And that's the great moment in the story of the scriptures where Jesus stands up. You've read it. And he says, for all who are thirsty, come to me. It's a powerful moment in the history of the world. Jesus is saying, hey, this is about me. I'm here. For centuries you've been doing this and singing and drawing the water and I want you to know that there is a water in me and you'll never have to do this again. All the feasts were filled with such prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. You're, you're getting it now. You're with me? So here he is. The Feast of Booths just completed. People are breaking down their shelters. They're finally glad to get back into their house. Oy vey, right? And, and then all of a sudden they're dragging this woman out. And Jesus, you know he's got to be thinking, are, are you kidding me? You've just spent the last seven days. There was a saying, there was a saying that said, you have not seen joy. You have not seen joy until you have seen the joy of the pouring out of the water. There's a verse in Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah, it's Isaiah 12, 3. It says, if you're a note taker, you want to write this down, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So here's Jesus saying, how can it be that so many centuries have passed by and you still don't get it? I gave you this land, not so you could find women like this caught in adultery and destroy her. We gave you this land so that you could rescue them, so that you can save them, so that you could help them find a better way. And look what you've done. When the finger of heaven comes down and writes on the soil of my soul, he writes, this is mine, and I gave it to you to rescue. This is part of the series this summer. When the finger of heaven comes down, as it does, and writes on the soil of your soul and on the soil of my soul, he says, I gave this body to you. I gave it to you. Your parents didn't give it to you. They got to participate, but this is me. This is what I do. I give life. I create. I gave you this body. I gave you this personality. I gave you your giftings and your callings and your talents and your future and your story. You wouldn't have it, none of it if it wasn't for me. I, it belongs to me. What are you doing with it? You think about the nation of Israel and the sacredness of their calling. Let's talk about each of us. I'm telling you, your calling is just as sacred. Your calling is just as purposeful. You mean just as much to God as them. They were chosen because of their specific purpose, but guess what? You're chosen. I'm chosen. And we have been put on this earth to be a means of rescue. It's supposed to define us. It's supposed to motivate us. It's supposed to speak to who we are every day that we wake up until the day that we breathe our last. The rescue invitation. For some of you, 
here tonight, when you look into the story of your life, you, you can't find a moment in time where you've made a vow of devotion to Christ. And, and we're hoping that, come on, tonight, tonight maybe could be that moment for you. But there's an invitation that Jesus wants to give to you. Now, I want to start with Leviticus 20 because this is important to us. I have the word detestable written here because when you look into Leviticus 20, you, you, you find a text in the Bible that that's, I, I would say is, 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 is rated R. You with me? There's some parts of the Old Testament, if you've got young kids, they shouldn't be probably reading the Old Testament by themselves. Some crazy stuff in there. This is one of those chapters in the Bible. Again, I have detestable written next to it. And really, what the subheading, right? Your Bible has subheadings. What the subheading of Leviticus 20 should be is, ooh, right? That's what it should be. Because it talks about sex with parents and animals and in-laws, right? You're saying, ooh, right? But he lists it. And then he lists all these punishments that are supposed to come for people who violate these things and and that's the civil part of the mosaic law and we know that's not a part of who we are anymore and there were times in israel's history where it would have been necessary to carry some of those things out but 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 we don't discard that part of the bible just because it's not relevant to us anymore we discard the punishment part of the bible because that's not our civil law and we discard that part of the bible now because jesus is the great grace giver and there's a forgiveness that he can give to us because he was the great atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world but what we have to be careful about what we cannot dismiss is that these things aren't detestable to God anymore because one of the reasons why we study the Old Testament is that in this journey we we discover his value system as we begin to read through the Bible, it's, it's part, even though some of it is ancient and some of the applications don't apply to us anymore, the principles are timeless and they're still there. And one of the great gifts that Scripture is to us, it gives us insight into the heart of God. It helps us to understand that which He calls right and that which He calls wrong, that which He calls righteous and that which He calls unrighteous. And as you read through this list, guess what? The woman who was caught in an act that day, that day well, I was Australian now just for a second. <laughs> I've been watching too much World Cup. All right. I wanted to bring that stuff where I could just spray like a line across the front here. I know, I know. Yeah. Maybe next week, maybe next week. This woman, she's in Leviticus 20. What she was caught doing is there. But I don't think God intended the Mosaic Law to to be this document that would motivate people to go out into the world and say, I'm going to find as many people as I can so that I can kill them. I don't don't think that was the heart of God. Were there times where people were brought to a place of justice? Yes, I think so. Were were there times where where people that they had given themselves over to such depravity that that God was saying, it's better for you to not be there anymore. I'm bringing you home to be with me. You with me? It's the big eternal time out that he gives sometimes in the Old Testament. But that doesn't mean his heart was to destroy people. If anything, the Mosaic Law was given to us first and foremost to help us see the people who need our help. If anything, the Mosaic Law was given to the Israelites so that they could see the people who were hurting and the people who were suffering and the people that needed to be rescued. 
I'm sharing that with you tonight because you might be here and you might be saying to me, Fred, I, when I read the Bible and I, the life that I'm living, when I read the Bible, the, the Bible has a lot of things. I, I'm usually in the wrong list. Hey, I know I've been there the first time I picked it up. When I was 23 year, three years old in, in 1990, I was always listed in the wrong list. But I didn't feel bad. I didn't feel depraved. I was enjoying my life. That's part of the journey of needing to be rescued is being willing to have the integrity to say, God, if you are willing to look at my life, even though it feels right to me, if you would look at it and say that life that you're living cost my son his life, that should give me pause. Jesus' response to the woman is showing us how to rescue others, but he is also helping others who have embraced depravity to see their need to be set free. Part of the beauty of scripture is given to us so that there can be a revelation for all people. I need his help. I'm, I'm Peter sinking on the water. Proverbs 14, 12 says this, there is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. We have to be careful that we don't find the God of mercy in Scripture and misunderstand mercy for permission. He is merciful and patient towards all of us, but that does not mean that he is permission giving for us to go out and live however we want to live. We like to say that God loves you just the way that you are, but he loves you so much that he will not leave you the way that you are. He accepts you just the way that you are. I don't care what kind of life you're living. I don't care what you were doing just a few minutes ago. I, I don't care how depraved or detestable you might say the Bible says that you are. He loves you just the way you are. You don't have to change a thing about your life to experience his embrace. And you don't have to change a thing about your life to experience our embrace. That's part of his love. But as he introduces himself and his love to you, guess what he begins to do with you? He begins to talk to you about change. He begins to walk you on a journey of reading this book and beginning to say that, hey, this book, like it says in the book of James, is a mirror, and then I'm supposed to look into it and see where my life doesn't fit, and then I'm supposed to begin to do the heavy lifting of making my life fit the example that Christ has given for me. And our commitment to you as a church is to accept you just the way that you are. You don't have to change a thing about your life, but the only thing that we ask is that you would be willing to go on a journey of a loving conversation where we're going to say, hey, have you thought about this? We're going to say, hey, we want to be here for you as you begin to work to change that. And that there's not a person who hasn't been a part of this church for any amount of time, who hasn't been on that journey of transformation, all of us. He loves us just the way that we are, but all of us are on a journey of great change and great transformation. When in my human condition I say to a perfect God, my rules are better, I have stepped in the greatest expression of arrogance that could ever be. And I know because it's the life that I lived for the first 23 years of my life. We're all willing to say we're imperfect, right? And if we're really willing to be honest, we're willing to say that we are terribly imperfect. Think about how flawed we are. Think about how selfish we are. The very nature of our humanity, it is the essence of imperfection. 
And for how many of us, for how many of you, for so many years of your life, you lived your life in such a way that said, you know what, I think I know better than God how I should live. When he's perfect, when he's sovereign, when he's all-loving, the plan that he has for us should cause something in our heart to say, God, I don't care how much change I'm going to have to endure. I want to be the person that you've called and created me to be because I know that you're perfect and your plans for me are perfect. The life that you want me to live is supposed to be striving ever forward towards a perfection that I will never reach, but may it be with every breath that I take, I'm pressing forward to get ever closer still. We all like the idea of him being our savior, but we just bristle at the fact of him being Lord. We like the idea that if you're here tonight and you're having a sense that that you're sinking spiritually, that you can't find a moment in the story of your life where you've made a vow of devotion to Christ and you're saying, yeah, Fred, I get it. I'm Peter on the water. And and there's something inside of you like the idea of Jesus coming and and reaching out to you and putting him back in the boat, but you want him to, to continue on in his journey in a boat over here. You with me? We don't want him in our boat. We don't want him determining the course of our life. We don't want him in our boat with us telling us how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to be, but that's part of the package. I would be as bold to say that until you're ready for him to be your Lord, he cannot be your Savior because he cannot separate himself. They are both the same, and they come together. If you've ever fallen in love with someone you didn't propose to them, with a list of all the things that you want them to, to stop being before you would marry them. If you did, you're still single. <laughs> or you changed your plan later and, right, you learned your lesson. But for so many of us, that's how we approach Christ. We come to him and we want him to be our savior. But we still want to be the boss of our lives. We've got to be willing to let him say to us what he said to the woman that was caught in that act on that day. Stop doing that. We've got to be willing to have the kinds of conversations with Jesus where he walks with us and he says to you and he says to me, I made you for better than this. Quit demeaning yourself in this way. Stop sinning in that way. This isn't who I called you to be. This isn't how I called you to live. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Castaway is one of those movies where it's, 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 not a, it's not a great movie. It's a movie that has great moments. Pastor Jamie and I were joking around about that on Thursday for our, our weekly breakfast that we, we, we do together. And, you know, some movies, they just put it together from start to finish, right? Like Saving Private Ryan is a great example of that. It just from start to finish, you're just enthralled. You even forget you're, you're watching a movie. Castaway is a movie that, that if, if, you're, if you're looking for that, you're not going to find it and you're going to be disappointed. But if you've not watched Castaway or if you've not watched it for a long time, I would encourage you to watch it in a different light and appreciate it. There are moments in there where you go, wow, that was big. How about where he does a little dental work with an ice skate? Just saying. Don't want to spoil it, right? I might faint just thinking about it right now. But this is one of those moments. He finds himself on this deserted island, and he was on a FedEx plane. He was an employee of FedEx, and he finds himself on the, on the island, and all these packages are, are beginning to wash up. And so, right, he's desperate. He's got nothing. And he begins to tear open these boxes, hoping that he's going to find something, right? Four steps to building a life raft. Something. He keeps ripping them open and ripping them open and ripping them open and he finds a few things that he can keep, but most of it, it's just stuff. It's amazing how your circumstances put your life in perspective. 
and he gets to the last box. And he goes to tear it open, and then he stops. It's the last one, right? This could have been the one with the GPS phone, with the active, right? It could have been the one. Just punched it in, and they would have been there in an hour. So he holds this box. It's a poignant moment in the movie. And he makes a decision. I'm not opening this box, because one day I'm going to get off this island, and I'm going to deliver this package to the person it's supposed to get to. I'm not going to tell you the end of the story. I'm not going to tell you, you you got to do the work yourself and watch it. But in that moment, he found purpose. In that moment, he had a reason to live. In that moment when things got hard and days that came where maybe he thought he wasn't going to make it, when he hit the four-year mark, he had a package. I don't care how long it takes, I'm going to get this into the hands of the person that it belongs to. And what I want you to know tonight, if you're here and you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, I hope you wake up every day with that kind of sense of purpose. Because there is a package that you've been entrusted with. It's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it can rescue people. It can save them out of their circumstance. It can draw them out of the depravity that they've given them. There should be something inside of you that every day you wake up and you've got a box in your hand, and in it is the key to life. And if you're here tonight and you don't know what I'm talking about, you can. Because this box that we carry, we want to open it and we want to give it to you. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head with me right now. Come on, everybody. We would just want to create a moment of privacy. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else right now. There's going to be a moment for you to come up for prayer at the end of the service. As we're, come on, we're in the home stretch. Just give me a few more minutes. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else right now. This is just a moment between you and God. But I just, I just, I want you to have an opportunity to step into a moment of honesty in your heart, a moment of integrity. That if you're here tonight and you look into the story of your life and you cannot find a moment where you made a vow of devotion to Christ, I'm talking about where, where you made it yourself. Where you looked at Jesus and said, I want to live for you for the rest of my life. If you can't find that moment, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand right where you are. Just raise it. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. Just slip it up where you are. Just slip it up. Keep it up just for a second. Come on. There's some hands going up tonight. Come on. All right, you can put that hand down. Come on. Father, we, we, we thank you for those hands that were raised tonight. And Father, I pray that as we step into this moment of worship, as we step into this just a moment of of just focusing on you and giving our hearts to you more fully, God, that there's that those people that raise their hands, that they're just going to be willing to take the next step. That that at some point in this song, they're just going to say it. They're going to say, Jesus, I'm going to live for you for the rest of my life. That they're just gonna, they're just gonna do it. They're just gonna jump in with both feet. They're going to feel it. They they don't have to know any special words to say because it's something of the heart. They can just give it all to you and take their first spiritual breath. Come on, let's stand. Worship with me tonight.